Today's scripture is found in John 21, verses 15, 19. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But you are old. When you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Two weeks in a row you get me. I hope that's okay. Um, I'm so glad again to be here. My name is Nick, and uh, I'm the lead pastor of Apostles Downtown Church. Um, We meet in the evening, um, if you didn't hear that last week. And so it's kind of easy for me to pop over and... um, and just be with you guys in the morning. And I actually live right here in the neighborhood, so it's even easier. I didn't have to deal with bikers blocking bridges today. Um, Well, about 20 years ago, um, I got to live in the inner city of Chicago for just a summer doing ministry in uh, a a project, famous housing project called Cabrini Green. And uh, we spent uh, kind of our job or, or what we wanted to do was take a lot of these uh, kids in the city out of the projects and get them into different environments like the woods. And uh, we went to uh, some theme parks and to do those kinds of things. But um, one of the things that I will never forget was the one time we went canoeing. If you can imagine going canoeing with inner city kids that have never even been in the woods, uh, it is incredible. So we uh, rent a bus, load up the kids. The kids are all crazy and excited um, and really insanely hyper. And um, I I absolutely love kids. So I'm trying to be Mr. Entertainer on the bus ride, you know, trying to keep everybody calm. And and so I'm entertaining them. And so I decide to tell them um, about my college experience of having piranha. So like we had piranhas as a college. It's like what college kids do, right? You have piranhas. So we... Uh, I was telling them uh, about our piranha and the fact that we would feed the piranha Hot Pockets and um, bologna, and they thought it was hilarious and that kind of thing. Well, little did I even think about the fact that we were going to water, and um, one of the kids made the connection um, that piranhas and water and all of these kinds of things, and so somebody said, is there piranha in the water? Um... So at that point, they're all convinced that there is piranha in the river that we're going to outside of Chicago, Illinois. And no matter what I said to them, I couldn't convince them otherwise that there is no piranha. I couldn't 
convince them. There's no piranha in the water. It's all safe. I appealed to a reason um, that we weren't, we weren't in, in, in international Amazon water. It's fine. So they all worked, though, each other into this deep frenzy. And we arrive at the river. And the canoes are waiting for us. And uh, before all this had happened, I decided, again, because I, you know, I'm just a sucker for punishment, I decided, well, how about I take the kids that are the hardest? So I took the two kids that were just the most trouble and um, just huge troublemakers into my canoe. And all night I had prayed for them, and I was thinking, how can I, like, really invest in these two kids and really uh, love on them in this, um, just this small short of time? And, and so I had this great plan that I came up with. This great plan that I could process the gospel with these kids. Um, but we get to the boat, and they wouldn't even get in. They wouldn't even get in. So I had to pull the boat all the way up onto the shore. So they were, you know, still five feet away from the water. They get into the boat, and I had to drag them into the water myself. I swam in the water, said, look, it's fine. I'm not getting eaten by anything. Um, but they wouldn't touch the water. They were freaking out. So I did everything I could to assure them the safe. I, I, I told them, hey, look, I'm an Eagle Scout. I, I am an Eagle Scout. I have, like, merit badges for canoeing. Um, you can trust me there. I've done this a lot, canoeing. I'm, I'm good at this, but they didn't care. There's piranha in the water waiting to eat them alive, right? So despite this massive setback, um, I was still determined to get through with these, to these kids and hoped to plant a seed of the gospel into them. Um, but it, at that point, I'm feeling like, man, I, I think I'm just sowing nothing but fear and, and pain in their lives. So I paddled along, and these two boys are whining. And so I start to see them ease up a bit, though, as time goes on. They're starting to relax. They're starting to enjoy themselves, sticking their finger in the water a little bit, you know, just to test it. Um, and, and so I thought, okay, now's the time to implement my discipleship plan, my great plan to disciple these kids. It was time to sow some gospel seeds here. Well, um, my, my well-thought-out plan was simple. Here's how it went. I simply rocked the boat a little bit, back and forth, and uh, I do that, and the kids instantly fall to the bottom of the canoe, screaming bloody murder. They're screaming, yelling at me, what are you doing? Well, I rock it back, the, back and forth, and I say, guys, I, um, I hope by at the end of this trip, that you will begin to trust me. I mean, these kids have so much trust issues, and especially with men in their lives, they just didn't trust. And so I'm just trying to gain their trust. Just trust me. I'm not going to tip it. See, the kids had all this anxiety. And so when I rock the boat, it triggers all that anxiety. And so uh, I just said, let's just, 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 just relax. So they calm down. They get back in their seat. We're paddling along. And I sighed, this is a good time again. Test it. Rock the boat a little bit. I rock it, and uh, again, same story. They freak out. Um, this time, though, I say, let me tell you a story about uh, Jesus um, who calmed a storm in a boat. And so I tell them that Bible story, if you're familiar with that. The storm comes, and the disciples are freaking out, and Jesus is trying to build the trust. And um, he tells the winds and the waves, be quiet. And they do. And I felt like I was getting through to them. They listened to the story somewhat, but they stopped freaking out at least. And uh, things were starting to work out. So now we're halfway into the trip. And the boys are both feeling pretty comfortable now. They got their whole hand in the water. They're, they're enjoying themselves. And so one of the boys in the boat, um, he decides that he wants to be the lesson giver. So he tips the boat a little bit. And of course... 
flips the entire thing. <laughs> flips the entire boat. And within like 0.3 seconds, these two kids were like literally standing on the top of my head. I'm in the, we're all in the water screaming bloody murder. They have life jackets on. They're okay. This isn't whitewater rafting. This is like drifting along. But they are screaming. There's piranha in the water. And I'm drowning. Like, I'm under the water, and I'm gasping for air. I can't breathe. Um, uh, I'm going to die. And, uh, and so I have a canoe in one hand, and I have two boys in the other, and I'm trying to kick paddle us to shore just enough so that I don't die. And so at this point, every canoe that was with us on that trip, trip is all looking at us like in amazement. Like, how does this happen? And, um, and I felt like the whole discipleship lesson that I planned uh, for these kids just went downriver with my paddle and my t-shirt and my shoes, all of them downriver. So this story, uh, I tell this long story because it pretty much summarizes our journey with God in so many ways. I mean, we struggle to trust, we struggle to believe, we struggle to have faith, and then when we start having a little faith, our boat tips over. And, and that's it. We're done with Christianity. We're just, this didn't work out for me. It just didn't happen right. This whole good news thing about Jesus, we, we, um, we can't trust. We can't believe it. We can't hold fast to it because it just doesn't prove itself to us. So really what I want to do, I really want to, I mean, I care about the churches in New York City. I care about just how the gospel goes forth in our city. And so my hope really is to take us down this discipleship road to move many of us from that really surface level faith um, that I'm going to just call confessional Christianity. Confessional Christianity. Uh, many of us have this confessional Christianity, this belief in Christianity that rests sort of on our lips and maybe on our Facebook bios, but it doesn't really drive us. It doesn't really stir in us. Uh, or if we can go off of last week's language, we're just lukewarm. We're not hot. We're lukewarm. It's a belief that we, uh, in some morals and a good life and these kinds of things. But conviction, just think about that word. It's an entirely different word than conviction, uh, confessional. Confession is like, yes, I confess to these things. Conviction is like, this is what drives me. It stirs me. It's sunk into my soul. And the best way I know how to move us, right, the, the discipleship lesson for us in the boat today is to simply look at Jesus' life with Peter. Because Peter has to go through his own little canoe trip with Jesus. He has to go through this journey himself. And he, he is obvious um, to the Spirit at times. He's a very good person. He's a very, it's, 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 I love Jesus, or Peter's life because he is um, just, he's an awesome guy, but he's a narcissist and he's a denier of Jesus and he fails so many times um, because most of his life he was this confessional follower. But Jesus wants more for Peter. He wants it to be a driving conviction that compels him in everything he does. So I want to look at five scenes, just snapshots of, of, of life with Jesus, Peter's life with Jesus, and see how Peter was transformed, how his identity was shaped and formed uh, from being confessional to really a conviction in Jesus Christ. So let's start our journey by looking at John chapter 6. So if you want to keep flipping with me, you can, or you can just listen. But John chapter 6, um, there's this famous story here. 
Many of you might know it. We see a huge crowd gathered. A buzz is in the air and people are excited to hear from this miracle worker named Jesus. The, the people are so fired up because Jesus turned a few loaves of bread to many loaves of bread. A few fish to many fish. And he fed the crowd. 5,000 men, that's like 15,000 people all gathered together Women and children all gathered. He's fed them all out of a few, and so they are just pumped. Jesus, if you can do this, you should be our king. You're the man. So the scene in John 6 is really what church leaders dream of. I mean, if you think about it, it's kind of like what the church wants to be. We look at that crowd and we say, oh, that, that, that's where it is. And they have, this, they have good slogans, too. Right, their slogan is, it's all about Jesus, Jesus our King. Right, they're saying the right things. They're saying the good things. Of course, they're saying Jesus our King and, can you give us some food? Can you make more bread? Look at verse 28. People were shouting, what must we do to be doing the works of God? This is the right thing to say. This is often what the churches still say. And, they, and they're wanting to see Jesus perform miracles and be in awe. I mean, can you imagine that in New York City? Could you imagine the bankers, the dancers, the actors, the homeless, the refugees, the government officials all coming together around this one thing? It'd be an amazing thought. It's an amazing dream. And the disciples have to be buzzing with life. They can't believe it's happening. They thought that this is it. But listen, Jesus is not enamored with these sorts of things. He discerns something that the disciples don't. He sees something that Peter certainly can't see. He sees all these thousands of people, they were not there because they truly wanted Jesus to be their king, but because this miracle worker knows how to feed their bellies. They don't care how it happens. They know how they got a show. They know they got a show and they got a free meal out of this and they want more of that. So Jesus feeds them, and they jump for joy, and then they chase them around when they get hungry again. Jesus sees that. He discerns that in them. But if we keep reading John chapter 6, it says Jesus, he had intended more for the crowds than feeding them. See, can we just stop? Like, Jesus always intends more for us. And we can't get beyond these kinds of things. We can't get beyond our stomach. Our earthly needs, those are so important to us. We just have a hard time getting past those kinds of things. But Jesus needs us to capture more. Many of us may be tempted toward the big, epic happening. Whether it's something you just aspire to or you get involved in. Whether it's church in the city or even your career path. And the scary thing is, is you might find it. It might happen because you're New Yorkers and this is uh, where dreams are made of. This is where the hustle and the grit can create the most epic life of ministry that you want. And this, I mean, this is where the epic churches to find are. They're, 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 this is New York. But Jesus isn't interested in letting us use him for our glory. Let me, let me say that again. Jesus is not interested in letting us use him For our own glory. This is what he is discerning the crowds are doing. 
they tried to use Jesus, and he sees through that motivation, and he goes straight to the core of them, and he completely offends them by saying, eat my flesh, drink my blood. Now, Peter, I mean, he's there the whole time, and he's watching this, and at this point, he turns to his disciples, and his eyes got to be popping out of his head. What, what did Jesus just say? So he pulls the disciples aside. I'm, I'm, I'm interpreting this a little bit. It's not, I don't know if this is what happened, but I'm imagining he pulls the disciples aside. And he says to them, guys, did, he, he said, eat his flesh and drink his blood. Has he gone crazy? I'm sure they're all thinking, should we leave? Should we stay? I mean, should we, what should we do here? This is too much. I mean, the PR trouble that's going to create, uh, it's not friendly Jesus. This isn't like miracle worker Jesus. This is offensive, just offensive. And we might hope that in Jesus saying that, the, the crowds, the masses would convert. Revival would break out. That this miracle, out of this miracle, the crowds turn to see their intention. And they say, Lord, we, are, we repent of this. Yes, you're right. We are seeking our own glory. We are glorying in our stomach. We want to be fed. But look what happens. Everyone left Jesus. Everyone. Thousands upon thousands leave Jesus And there's the few left that are dumbfounded. The 12. So Jesus turns to them. You want to go too? But but listen to Peter's response. Now, we don't know what tone he said this in. And there's so many different tones I've kind of imagined him saying this. But I imagine him just being dumbstruck and saying, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. This is Peter's first lesson in trying to get the gospel to be off his lips and in his heart. To move from this lukewarm life to hot. So it can be something deeper in him. It's not just a belief system, a, religious, a religion to live by, but it's a full-on take all of Jesus Eat his flesh, drink his blood. There's nowhere else to go. It's all of him. Take it all. So that's lesson one. The second big story comes from chapter 13. Now, you can flip to that one if you want. Um, This powerful scene we all might be familiar with as well. As Jesus is stooping low to wash the disciples' feet. Let Let me read this. Verse 4, he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel and was, that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter. Remember, this is, I, I want you to see it through Peter's eyes. Who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you'll understand Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Now notice how Peter reacts to Jesus when he displays such humility, such service towards him. He says, no way. I don't need you to serve me. I don't need you to do anything for me. Let me serve you. We should be washing your feet. Now to be fair... To Peter, this is a normal reaction, isn't it? I mean, this is kind of where I would go. Like, uh, Jesus, you're Jesus. 
let me wash your feet. We might all stand up and say, Jesus, you're God. I'm supposed to serve you. Now, so though on the surface, this seems like he's displaying such humility. Peter is just, just displaying this humility. What's really at heart is this pride that says, it's my job to take care of Jesus. The deepest of pride always kind of masks itself with a little humility, doesn't it? It's, it's good to see that Peter doesn't see his own pride either, because I know I don't. He doesn't see that Jesus is trying to tell him something beyond clean feet. It's not just about getting your feet washed. He's saying, you have to be washed by me. There is no other way to be clean. See, many of you here, you refuse to let Jesus wash your feet. Many of you refuse to let Jesus wash you. And I'm talking spiritually speaking. Some of you think you're too holy. You you don't think Jesus needs to serve you because you're good. You're smart. You're capable. What in the world do you need to be clean from? Your career's going well, you have friends, you're making money, but Jesus says the only way to rid yourself of your pride is to let me take all of that dirt and that pride and clean you. Now, others of you, and I suspect most of you, a lot of you here, won't let Jesus wash you because you think you're too dirty. You're too dirty to be touched by something so pure, somebody so pure, and to be cleansed. You have a rap sheet as long as you can see of all the ways that you have offended God or the horrible things that have been done to you. So you've taken all of that dirt, all of that grime, and you've tried your entire life to scrub and scrub and clean and redeem yourself, to show yourself worthy to God, and you want to present yourself pure to Him by cleaning yourself. Maybe some of you have just tried so hard to Wash yourself as a payment of sorts. God, you you died for me, so I'm going to clean myself up because I'm so dirty. I can't be before you. I don't deserve you. Listen, Jesus is saying, I must wash you. Everyone here needs clean. We all need clean. We need a servant king to stoop low because we are low. A servant king uh, to find the dirtiest parts of us, the inside a, a servant king to look us in the eye and display this servant love like no one else can. I mean, really, can you wash Jesus like this? I mean, put yourself back into Peter's shoes. Can you wash Jesus like that? Can you clean him like that? No, you weren't meant to. It's only when you let him wash you and serve you that you'll find yourself tied into Christ with such a depth and conviction. When your relationship with God depends on your ability to wash Jesus' feet, it's subpar. It's, it's not enough. It's not even close to enough. Conviction comes when we experience the purity that comes from Christ. So that's scene two. Let's look at Three. Jesus feeds us, Jesus wash us, washes us. And just a few verses later, Peter learns this next lesson. We don't die for Jesus, but Jesus dies for us. Let me read it again. Verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, 
Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus says, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. How many times, how many times have we said to God, I would die for you. But moments later, we find that we can't even live a moment for him. I mean, what Peter does here is he throws himself out there as the Savior. Often we live only in Christian confession because our lives are daily marked by us trying to be the sacrifice, trying to be the Savior or play the part that Jesus is supposed to play. Jesus' death on the cross was supposed to be the mark of our, of our lives. It's, it's his death that covers us, his sacrifice that compels us, his cross from where the power lies. Now, some of you here might be thinking, well, aren't we supposed to die? We're still called to die, to lay our lives down for Jesus, right? I mean, that's part of becoming a Christian. But Peter, hear Peter and, and examine your own life in light of this. We are to die to our sin. First Peter 2, 24 states, He himself bore our sins on his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. Our death isn't to earn favor before God. Our sacrifice our, our, our killing our, our, of ourselves in a way is not to earn ourselves before God. It isn't to show God how um, good we are. It's to kill the sin in our lives so that we can live in righteousness. But too often we miss the point and jump right in front of Jesus to make the sacrifice. And it doesn't take long. Jesus lets Peter know really quick that this supposed conviction won't last long. Oh yeah, you're going to die for me? You're going to die for me, Peter. Yeah, well, guess what? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. I mean, it took a teenage girl confronting Peter at Jesus' death to make Peter crumble before he realized that he can't lay down his own life. He can't do it. We will not live with the conviction of Christ without first experiencing Jesus' death for us. Peter needed this moment He needed that awakening. He needed the gospel to sink deeper into his heart in this moment. So Jesus feeds us. Jesus washes us. Jesus died for us. Now let's look at the fourth scene. This is one of my favorites because it just shows Peter in all his glory. And I love it. Um, Many of you know this story too. Let me read it. John 18. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? This is where Peter gets bold, not just with words, but with action. His rage, or maybe his love, it's all mixed in, right? He just Jesus is about to get arrested. His friend, his mentor, his just his father, his, 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 somebody who's invested in him like this. It's, it's all mixed up, but he comes flying out at the guards. He's going to attack them. And they were coming to arrest, so he was going to attack them. And so uh, he takes out his sword, and his, in his passion, he swings. And I love that he just can't, this is Peter's failure, he just can't even cut his head off. It's like he just, 
He tries his best, and all he gets is an ear. Right? True warrior Peter. He just gets the ear. And I lo- this little detail is so good um, because it lets us know that Peter couldn't even defend Jesus. He can't stick up for Jesus. He couldn't go all braveheart on, on these guards. Yet it's here in the garden that Peter needs to come back to the school of gospel transformation. It's right here, right before Jesus is about to go to the cross that Peter needed to learn another deep transformative lesson. So Jesus heals Malchus's ear and calls Peter to faith. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Peter doesn't get it yet, but Jesus getting arrested will lead to Peter getting a sword that doesn't defend him but destroys the principalities and the powers of this world that crushes the sin and the enemies of this world. As 2 Corinthians 10, 4 says, For the weapons of our warfare are not in the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Jesus is about to go and win the war. Peter needed to get that. And yet we still live like Peter, swinging the sword, defending Jesus, asking Jesus is asking us for faith here. Now, this isn't defending Jesus in the workplace. It's not the apologetics type. I'm not talking about that kind of defense, defending of Jesus and talking about his life and death and his resurrection. We must defend Jesus in that way. But what Jesus is digging out of Peter is that Peter is so desperate to defend Jesus that he isn't experiencing the faith that he needs to have in Jesus. Let him do his work. Let him do what he came here to do. Peter isn't alone, is he? But you get into defensive mode when you forget that he's in control. You might even start swinging your sword at people when Jesus ceases to be the center of your world. But there's a faith that he's calling us to have. Jesus feeds us. Jesus washes us. Jesus died for us. Jesus defend us. And finally, I want to look at that one last scene. And we... Heard it read already of Jesus sitting down with Simon Peter after his resurrection. I mean, can you imagine them taking this long journey together and Jesus sits down and he's just like, you see what I've been doing, Peter? Do you see the plan here? Do you love me more than these? Yes, I do. Feed my lambs. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Over and over again, and then at the end, finally, he said, follow me. After three years with Peter, Peter stayed to be fed by Jesus. Peter submitted to let Jesus wash him. Peter denied Jesus. Peter defended Jesus. And then Jesus was crucified, died, buried, triumphs over the grave with his resurrection and he now sits down with his broken brother Peter to ask him those few last questions. One last lesson before Pentecost comes in Acts chapter 2. Do you love me, Simon Peter? He asked this question three times. Again, Peter's going mad. He's going nuts. You know everything, he finally says. I mean, can you feel the exasperation in that? What are you getting at, Jesus? You keep doing this to me. 
Jesus needed one last point to drive home. Do you, Peter, really get that I am the one at work here? Are you starting to see it? That I am the one who has served you so that you can go and serve. I am the one who has died so that you wouldn't have to earn your salvation. I am the one who rose from the dead so that you could live forever. Do you get that, Peter? Jesus wanted Peter to be so gripped with Jesus, to have such conviction, to be set upon a radically God-centered foundation. It was when Jesus saw that click in Peter's heart, he said, follow me. I wanted to walk through Peter's story because I imagine many of you here resonate with it. Maybe you're realizing for the first time just how much you resonate with Peter and his journey with Jesus. Maybe last week as I I talked about the lukewarm church that we are called to be either hot or cold. It just left sort of a feeling of, okay, where do I go with that? But maybe maybe you still aren't there. You're still in session with Jesus' school of discipleship. Maybe you're, you're there in the exasperation phase. Maybe you're there in the defense stage. Well, I want to go through his journey. I wanted to go through his journey because I want you to embrace yours. I want you to embrace where you are. What I hope for you is that you don't just get your theological eyes dotted and T's crossed, that you don't live in a Christian world where you feel like you need to be a performer. To have the right Christian answers the right morals, because I want us to get the real stuff of Christianity. I mean, do you want the real Christianity? You know, the stuff after the crowds leave, after the epic numbers fade. I want us to get the real stuff of Christianity. I want to be so gripped by the gospel that we can do nothing else but follow him in all things. Jesus is bidding us to be fed by him, to be washed by him, to accept his death for us, to let him defend us. It is then that we can pick up our cross and follow him. It is then when the boat flips over in our lives. We feel like we're drowning. We feel like all is lost. That we can stop, rest, stand firm on Jesus' work. Let's pray.